Thank you very much, John. I think this is probably the third or fourth time you, your embassy has hosted our birthday party. So that's really kind of you. Um, some people said, should we really have a party tonight? Should it not be a wake rather than a party? No, it is a, it is a party. It's a proper party, not just to celebrate our birthday. It's also the EU is worth celebrating. It's the greatest peace project in human history, for God's sake. For God's sake. It's definitely worth celebrating. And 27 countries want to stay in it, and the 28th may come back one day in the future. Um, I'm not going to talk about the campaign now, because it's not appropriate. All I'll say is that I'm proud of the work we did. My staff are fantastic. My research team was brilliant. They did the best work we've ever done, and thank you very much to them for, for their fantastic work and to our admin team for supporting them. Thank you very much to them. And we're still in business. There's a job for us to do. There are two jobs for us to do. As many of you know, we've always been a European think tank based in London rather than a think tank focused narrowly on the UK. Five of my eight researchers are not British citizens, and I hope they can stay here. Let's hope they do. Um, and the EU still badly needs reform, so that mission of coming up with new ideas for reforming the EU remains essential to our work. The second strand, of course, will be the EU-UK relationship. It's going to be very, very, very bad, but it could be even worse than that. And our mission is to minimize the damage in that relationship and to help the two sides to understand each other better. Our, our long-term objective is to make sure that Britain and the rest of the EU have as close as possible relations uh, as, as, as possible. And I, my own view is that will be easier in the area of defense, foreign policy, and security than in economics. In economics, and I see David Lidington nodding, in economics, they're going to drive a hard bargain uh, I think we don't know what's hit us yet in, in the British economy. Uh, no single market without free movement of labor. Uh, but I think defense, foreign policy, and security, we have assets that they need and would like. So I think they'll associate us. I hope they will anyway. That's quite likely. Our calling card of the CR will remain objective, sober analysis, and practical recommendations. Finally, a word about our speakers tonight. Uh, I just checked through our archives. The last time we had a double act at our birthday party was 2005, when the two speakers were John Kerr and one Boris Johnson. Uh, and, I, and, I seem to remember, and I seem to remember that John Kerr was upset because Boris had written in The Spectator that John Kerr was a liar or had lied. And John Kerr never quite forgave Boris for that. Uh, now, uh, as for our two speakers tonight, there are, of course, parallels between them. They're both social democratic politicians now running very important NGOs, ex-politicians, David. Uh, okay, one, one running the International Rescue Committee, one running the Save the Children Fund. Heller, I think I first met you briefly when you were uh, an MEP. You graduated from Bruges. You're the first prime minister we've had at the CR birthday party. It's a great honor to have you with us this evening. Uh, David, you together with Nick Butler, who's here. Nick, wave your hand. Where are you, Nick? Together with Nick Butler, you invented the CR about 20 years ago, so great to have you back. You've twice before spoken at our birthday party. The last time was our 10th birthday party, hosted by Wolfgang Ischinger at the German residence. Then you were Foreign Secretary. The Wheel of Fortune has turned since then for Europe and for you, but wheels turn back, and I'm sure that the wheels will turn back in a more propitious way. Who knows in the future? Uh, final word, um, one is supposed to look for silver linings when bad things happen. And it's quite hard, but I think it's possible. Since the 23rd of June, I have noticed something I've never noticed before in this country, which is young people incredibly passionate and energetic and enthusiastic for the EU. This is something new in British society. And I think this may be the foundation of something that drives the political class in the future, probably the long term, not the short term, 
to take Britain back closer to the EU. With that, I'll stop and hand over to David. Thank you. Oh, sorry, Helen. Helen. Yes, Helen. Well, thanks a lot, Charles, uh, and uh, thank you for introducing yourself to me. When I was member of European Parliament, which was uh, my first political job, since then I became party leader for 10 years, and then I was uh, prime minister. I've seen through um, a lot of referenda in Denmark. I was part of uh, the referenda when we lost in 92. I'll come back to that. Um, I was part of the Maastricht Treaty. We won the Amsterdam Treaty. Uh, I won a referendum when I was prime minister because we were voting. Uh, we had a referendum about the patent solution for Europe, which we won. Um, so there has been ups and downs in uh, in, in our, my European discussion with the, with the Danes as well. But I will tell we we are also talking about what is the silver lining, and I will tell you this. Some of you might remember this. It was in '92 when the Danes voted against the Maastricht Treaty that we won the European Championship. <laughs> And uh, you still got Wales hanging in there. So maybe, I'm just saying, I'm just saying maybe there is some, something there. The other silver lining that I think we should, uh, we should note is that since the British referendum, they also obviously they did polling in other countries. And I noted one uh, polling in Denmark the other day, this weekend actually. And they asked the Danes, do you want to be closer to the core of the European Union? Uh, do you want to leave the European Union? And the interesting thing is that 42% said that they wanted to be closer to the core of the European Union. And only 16% said that they wanted to leave the European Union. These are changed change of figure. And if nothing else come out of this, thank you very much for, for, for that. Uh, because that is actually quite remarkable. I always knew that the Danes were against leaving the European Union. Uh, we always knew the Norwegian deal very, very well, and that didn't just seem attractive that they had to follow all the rules uh, without having part in the decision-making. So I think for a lot of things, that just didn't seem very attractive. But back to the UK uh, situation and the European, um, what needs to happen in, in Europe now. First of all, I like to say about the referendum that we should never forget to thank the 16 million that voted in favor of remaining. And, uh, and when I say that, I actually think it's quite amazing that we got 16 million to go in and vote yes to that. Why do I think that? Well, there are a number of reasons. First of all, look at the referendum history, uh, not here, but in the rest of Europe. The referendum history is actually quite poor. Every time we have asked a big question to the people of Europe, they have answered with a big fat no or no or whatever. We asked in the Netherlands very recently about Ukrainian uh, deal. That was a no. In December in Denmark, we asked about uh, joining the home and justice affair. That was a no. The Irish asked some years ago. That was a no. And don't forget that France, one of the founding members of the European Union, they asked in 2005 on the Lisbon Treaty, which is a very good treaty, which actually gave us Article 50, otherwise we would not have known what to do what, uh, at all. Uh, so that was a very good treaty. They voted no. I, if I remember, remember correctly, that was 54% no to that treaty. So it is not a new thing that when people are asked, they answer no to the European Union. So... First of all, that's one of the reasons. What are we thinking? Why do we think we could win that just from looking at referendum history? 
The other thing I think we should look at is the specific British context in all this. The specific British context is that we have a very um, unequal society, an election system that means that people don't always feel that they get hurt in society. When there's then a referendum, people feel this is when I really can get hurt, and they come up and vote, and they vote against not only the EU, but against establishment, against politicians that are not seeing them. I think the UK-specific context of inequality plays a big role here. The other very UK-specific uh, is that for 20 years, British politicians, and I name no one, but British politicians en masse have spoken very badly about the European Union. Forgot to mention that this is a fantastic project this is what I created the peace and the, uh, the neighborhood uh, the, the friendship that we have in Europe. This is part of the story of a Europe that has finally come to peace with itself. That story is very rarely told in the UK, while the opposite, I would say, and it is a bit naive after 20 years of slagging off the EU, then to go out and ask people to vote yes, Thus, again, I think we have to thank the 16 million. Another concrete thing, I know the campaign, I thought there was an amazing campaign here, but one thing we need to learn from this campaign is that it doesn't work, and you could have asked us because we knew, it doesn't work only to talk about the economy. I know that a very famous politician said, is the economy stupid? But the fact is that it no longer is. It is not the economy stupid. And what we have to remember now and for a very long time is that culture and identity trumps culture. It just does. And until we understand that, we will have, very, we have a very difficult um, situation in trying to convince people that Europe is a good idea. So let's never forget that again. The third thing, I think, where it should have been obvious that we couldn't win this referendum was the state of the European Union. I love the European Union. I'm a complete Europhile. I have worked with Europe for many, many years. But we have to be honest. Some of the big problems that needs to be solved right now, we're not providing the answers. We're not providing answers for the economic growth that we do not have in Europe. We're not providing answers for the security situation that a lot of people uh, on the eastern side of our union are experiencing. We're not providing answers for the European refugee crisis. We're not providing common solutions. And that is why people are looking at the European Union feeling that that protection from globalization that we said it would deliver, those new answers that we said European Union would deliver, they're simply not feeling it. So we have to look at ourselves, not to Brussels, because this is not Brussels' problem. This is not the Commission problem that this wasn't possible. It is because we, as European leaders, over many years, have failed to deliver answers. And I will say one more controversial thing in this context. I believe that free movement of labor is a fantastic thing. But I also feel that for a long time, we should have listened to European leaders. I was being one of them that kept saying, this is going in a direction where we can't control it. 
So I'm hoping that that message is taken across to Europe and that people, decision makers in Europe, will realize that this had become a big issue. And I will finalize this by saying there will be two streams of thoughts in Europe right now. One will be that the countries that are there now should tighten the grip, become more of a federation, maybe exclude some of the countries that don't want to be part of that. An example of that is the six founding fathers meeting briefly after, after the referendum. I don't understand what legitimacy they have. What we could see is that we're still fathers because there's six foreign ministers that were still men. But the legitimacy, why does those six have a legitimacy to meet? I do not know. And this is the tendency that will be in Europe right now. The other stream where I belong is that we learn something from this referendum. We learn something from the questions that people were asking. We learn something from the, for the worries that people had in this country because they are not only worries for the British people, they are worries for a lot of people on the continent as well. So if something good can come out of it. It is that we take those lessons across to the continent, learn from that, and then see how a deal can be struck, struck with, the, uh, with the UK. And the last thing about, uh, last thing, and then I'll finish. Is it possible to find a good solution for the UK? This is something I will not go into. But I remind, will remind everyone that the UK have not been 100% members for years. UK have only been 60% member for years. And in many ways, it's not that hard to imagine that you can find a connection with Europe that is not 60%, but perhaps a little bit less in percentage. And I, and I feel that should be possible. But of course, it will be a very, very hard uh, negotiation. The last thing I want to say is on a more positive note, apart from this, that you might win uh, Wales in, in uh, going there, a more positive uh, note. 16 million people have been up to say they want to remain. Young people that we know uh, and that are saying to us, this is damaging their future, they are furious about this. While we would have liked them to be more, participate more before the referendum rather than being angry after the referendum. But maybe this could be a wake-up call, a wake-up call to the youth of Europe to stand up and say, this is our Europe. If I'm 19, like my daughter is, 19 years old, she has got the right to define this Europe with other 19-year-olds across Europe. And maybe the youth of Europe will wake up now, ask questions, demand more, and demand that their voice is being heard in the European Union. That is my hope for the future, that young people get up there, say, this is our Europe, we will decide how it looks like. And if this doesn't wake them up, nothing will. So I have a strong hope in the youth, the European youth, and I believe that some good has to come out of this very, very difficult situation. Because one thing is certain, the problems will not go away. There are still children that are dying trying to cross the Mediterranean. There are still security issues on the border, on the fringes of our borders. There are still growth and employment issues in Europe. These problems will not go away. And even though you've been, uh, the Leave campaign was saying, let's, let's bring back control, it is hard to bring back control on, if you deny globalization. It is still there, 
and we have to find instruments to, con to embrace globalization and make the most of it. The last thing I say, if ever UK leave, we will miss you badly. And I hope that people will remember how much good that the UK have brought to the Union. We wouldn't be there with enlargement without you. We would have a more dirigist way of organizing our economy without you. We wouldn't have open market economy without you. So please remember how much good you have brought to our union. It is my sincere hope that that can continue and that we can find a fruitful relationship. Good luck with it all. We miss you and we love you. <laughs> Well, good evening, everyone. I'm thrilled to share a platform with Hella. This is the first time since she took over at Save the Children that we're on the same panel together or the same platform together. And you can see why she was an extraordinary prime minister uh, and also a prime minister whose vote went up from the uh, first election she fought to the second. I also want to salute Charles and his uh, team. Because I, I'm sure I speak for Nick when I say that when we created the Centre for European Reform, little could we hope that it would produce such an extraordinary body of work that its standing would be so high and that it would become, frankly, a real beacon of good sense, of radical thinking, and of positive proposals for the future, not just of Europe, but of uh, Britain. And I really think you, Charles, if I, uh, you'll be embarrassed, but um, your devotion to the... CER has been absolutely extraordinary, and I think it's God's honest truth, none of this would have happened without you, so I think we owe you a huge, huge debt. Now, this is, a, um, this is a party, but it's not the kind of conditions that we hoped for when I accepted this invitation to speak six weeks ago, and I've actually written down some things that I want to say, because I feel that this is serious times that deserve some serious thinking. And I, I essentially want to make a really simple point about Britain and Europe, but also about the CER. I hope you agree, Nick, that the founding idea of the CER was that the interests of Britain and the interests of the rest of Europe were not a zero-sum game. That was the big idea that we wanted to bring into the British debate 18, 20 years ago, and it's what, we've tried to, what the CER has tried to bring to the wider debate. And I think that's what we have to defend in the months and in the, frankly, years ahead. Uh, the vote was close, but the majority was to leave. And we're now in really uncharted and dangerous territory, dangerous territory for our economy, but also for our country, frankly. Uh, and having just come back from Strasbourg, I spent the last 36 hours in Strasbourg, it can't be emphasized often enough that our futures, the British future and the continental future, are utterly bound Together, recession beckons Britain, but frankly, it's beckoning the rest of Europe as well. Uh, fragmentation of our societies is beckoning Britain. It's beckoning the rest of Europe. Political polarization, the rise of very, very nasty xenophobic and nationalist movements, that's not just a British problem, it's a European problem. And the stakes, therefore, are very, very high. And I'm sure it's the same uh, for you, Hella. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of plans that are now being developed for the different scenarios over the next few years. And I say this as someone who runs a relatively large NGO with a London office that is our European hub. We've got to think about the future of that, just in our organization. And that's happening all across the, uh, the private sector and the NGO sector. 
But this is really key to me. The pro-European cause did not die on the 23rd of June. In a way, that's your point about the 16 million voters. And frankly, we don't give up on the 52% either. Uh, the, uh, the geography did not change on the 23rd of June. The values did not disappear. And our allies did not turn into strangers. The overriding message I get from the rest of Europe is that people are sad. Some people are angry about the problems that it's caused, but people are sad about what has happened. And obviously, it would be crazy to try to deny the result. But equally, we can't down tools, down our policy tools or our intellectual tools or our political tools in the face of the worst consequences. We should say it again and again. Britain is destined, some would say doomed, I would say destined, to have a European future. We depend on the rest of Europe and can be a benefit to the rest of Europe. And I think we have to think, I'm thinking about this in three buckets, three short segments. The first is about politics. I've said many times that populism is popular until it gets elected. Now, the good news is it doesn't often get elected, but it did win on the 23rd of June. But did we ever have quicker proof of the dangers when populism gets elected or, or, or wins? Uh, a campaign can be a post-fact or anti-fact shouting match, but government can't. The remedies of the campaign, in truth, turn into the poison pills of government very, very quickly. The promises on immigration, the promises on the NHS, the triggering of Article 50 being postponed. Now, it's easy in a group like this to say the Leave campaign got it all wrong. But I honestly say to you, I think there is a deep and dangerous danger in this room going out and saying, we told you so. We must avoid that at all costs. Still worse just to mock the U-turns and the stupidities of those who are now having, who are going to have to stand on their heads for the things that they said in the course of the uh, campaign. Instead, I think we've got to hold fast to our principles, make the case that Britain requires a future of cooperation in Europe, admittedly as yet undefined, and think how the interests of the country can be squared with the results of the referendum. Because the truth is that in many of the equations, the interests of the country and the results of the referendum run directly against each other. And I say this with some feeling, as many of my constitu former constituents in South Shields will be on the receiving end of the wrong things that happened to the country as a result of the vote. So that's just the thing about the politics. The second thing is about Europe. And here I am with Hella a million percent on what she said about the context that was set. In fact, the truth is, the Centre for European Reform, we needed to do more reform. That's essentially what you're saying, and I agree with you very, very strongly. But the debates that were there before haven't gone away. The truth is that austerity and reform are not being squared at the moment. And the truth is that austerity has become a stumbling block to reform. It's getting in the way of reform. Uh, the need to shift spending, uh, focus, resources to the agenda of tomorrow around energy cooperation, intelligence sharing, and not just for reasons of special pleading, refugees and migration, that agenda has got to become the future agenda uh, of Europe. Uh, the need uh, to find ways to govern a multi-speed Europe in a better way. And honestly, I think the deepening is going to have to happen for the Eurozone to be run effectively. Now, all of those were important before the referendum, and they look harder now. But I want to make a different point that picks up something that Heller said, because I think it's really important. And it crystallized 
for me in the last few days is how many times have you heard people say that the European project was designed to prevent Europe falling backwards, going back to war? And of course, in many ways, that is true. But when I really thought about this, I thought about this on the, on the plane, actually. Um, Europe, for me, wasn't just about stopping um, the countries of the EU going backwards. It was about sustaining and spreading what's best about Europe, not just avoiding what was worst about European history. And I think that's what the young people were marching for on Saturday. Cooperation, not conflict. Democracy, not dictatorship. Remember, there are countries of the European Union which 30 years ago were dictatorships. The dignity of the individual, majority rule, but also respect for minorities. These were enshrined values in the European Union as European values, but also as universal values. And I think we've got to, we should stop being ashamed uh, of that. Uh, the young people weren't ashamed of it in their march on Saturday, and we should be as proud as they were. And sorry to say, that sense of pride, viewed from a distance and from three or four campaigning visits, was absent from the Remain campaign. And I think it does speak to the point that Heller makes, that having spent 20 years dripping Euro poison into the bloodstream, it's very hard to then turn around and say, we've got to stay in the European Union to uh, avoid disaster. And I think we've got to learn from that. The final thing I just want to say is about Britain, because there's obviously a lot that needs to be said, and even more that needs to be done, but I'm not going to do it all tonight, don't fear not. Um, there's obviously a short-term need for reassurance and this whole issue of the um, international, uh, the European workers who are here is, a, is an example of it. Um, there are, there's a need for reassurance for British citizens, obviously, who fear there's no government. And before anyone says, I know what the end of that sentence could be, and I won't say it, because there's a, you could say, no government and, but I won't uh, add to it. The, uh, um, but look, the, the, I want to make a serious point that the, sh the short-term gyrations are much less dangerous than the medium-term dangers. That's really what I fear. Uh, the truth is that it's over the 6, 9, 12, 15, 18 months that the dangers become much greater. It's very important that no one should be crowing about the stock market going down and saying we were right. No, that doesn't prove anything. The danger is over a much longer uh, period. And we all know leave is not a plan or a policy. So everything is up for grabs, and that's why it's so dangerous. But the choice of leave means a whole new set of very, very difficult choices. David, uh, it's great that you're here, and you're going to be in the in the middle of these choices. What is the price that we're willing to pay to limit EU migration? Uh, because there are countries who are not willing to pay that, uh, to make that change. What about the cost and mitigation of losing European workers from Britain, in the private sector, but frankly also in the NHS? About the offer to investors if we're going to leave the single market? About the substance of our foreign policy if we lose the multiplier effect of the European Union? And all these need to be negotiated in a way that maintains popular consent. But I would say this, all of those issues are just as big issues for us as people who voted to remain as for those who voted to leave or those who are charged with implementing it. And I really want to say this very, very strongly. In simple terms, the renegotiation of our relationship with the EU cannot just be a matter for the new conservative leadership. It's a much bigger issue. De Gaulle said, that war is too important to be left to generals. Renegotiation is too important to be left to those who simply voted to leave. And it affects us all, however we voted. I think it's really good, uh, Sadiq Khan has said, he wants to be part of that discussion. Too damn right he should be part of it, because there are 8 million people in London who depend 
on the circle being squared for London in a way that does justice to this being the number one city in the world. And I think this speaks really directly to where I started and where I end, which is the work of the Centre for European Reform. I mean, it's a cliche, really, when, uh, I suppose, for a birthday party, but the work that you're going to do, Charles, in the next period is almost more important than the work that you've done up to now. Those of us who supported Remain were convinced that it wasn't a denial of Britain's destiny to be part of the European Union, but actually a fulfillment of it. So today, the processes of European reform are not a sideshow for the future of this country. They're deeply enmeshed in it. And it's not going to happen quickly, this renegotiation. Someone said to me uh, yesterday, have you ever tried to unscramble an egg? I mean, this is many, many eggs, very, very well scrambled. And there's a lot of easy talk about how you organize a divorce and how you have a new relationship. It's not going to be easy to do that at all. And those, of you, those people are saying it's going to be done and dusted in 18 months or two years. Really, I don't think you've looked at this in any sort of detail. A vibrant, effective, challenging CER is critical, in my view, to the rest of Europe, but it's also critical to the future of Britain. Charles, I hope you're going to be a source of wisdom and ideas, both for people here and for people on the continent. It requires all of you, your organizations in the private sector, governments, you need to support this organization. You need to fund it, you need to engage with it, you need to give it the platform that it deserves. And I think that that is important in substantive terms, but I also think it's important symbolically. This point that all of us who are British don't have a zero-sum relationship with the rest of Europe, but a positive-sum relationship, came home to me when I thought, hang on, 40 years of my life have been shaped by the fact that people decided in 1975 that we should join the European Union. The opportunities were created by that. And I don't want the next 40 years to be shaped by the denial of the opportunities, either to myself or to my kids. They're a bit younger than uh, Hellas. But we are absolutely intertwined. And so the symbol, as well as the substance of the work of the CER, seems to me to be really important. And what is that symbol? It's that to be British is, in fact, to be European. And to be European is not to spurn Britain, but, as Hella said, to partner with it. That's a very hard message to preach after the 23rd of June. But in my view, it's all the more vital, not just for the sake of Britain, but for the sake of Europe. Thank you very much indeed.